Our power as consumers is incredibly limited, but our muscle as citizens is very powerful and we've allowed it to atrophy. Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute. We say that our guests are cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good. And they're social artists, people who feel deeply and act with courage in the face of uncertainty. As we all work to protect what we love and change what we can and learn as we go, our awakened hearts are absolutely necessary partners to our critical thinking minds. Stacy Mitchell is our guest today. She's the co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, a national research and advocacy organization that fights corporate control and works to build thriving, equitable communities. In 2020, Stacy was profiled in the New York Times for her analysis of Amazon's power and her leadership in building a broad coalition to challenge it. She's written several influential reports and articles about the corporation, including a 2018 cover feature for The Nation. Amazon doesn't just want to dominate the market, it wants to become the market. Mitchell has also written for The Atlantic, Bloomberg, Washington Monthly, and Wall Street Journal, and she's the author of the book, Big Box Swindle. In addition to her work at Institute for Local Self-Reliance, Mitchell serves on the board of the Maine Center for Economic Policy. She graduated summa cum laude with a BA in history from McAllister College and lives in Portland, Maine. And now here's Stacy. Okay, Stacy Mitchell, welcome to What Could Possibly Go Right. In the last two years, 75 passionate activists and thinkers has, have given us their perspectives on this very question. Not what went wrong, not what should be, not even hope, but seeing what's possible inside of what is. Uh, we call them cultural scouts. And it is a time of such great change, you know, like roiling change, that people long to see something clearly so they can invest their energy in either resistance or regeneration according to their temperament. So you are co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And I will say that I met the founder, David Morris, uh, at an early meeting of the International Forum on Globalization. And I have been on the trail of localization ever since. Uh, and I've referred to your website many, many times. So I am especially thrilled to have you with me today. You speak for what I believe in and what I work towards. So usually I ask my guests only the one question, what could possibly go right to help us see through your eyes what we can risk being op optimistic about. However, I miss in public discourse the sharing of what stirs our souls, what experiences have kindled our passion enough to hack away at the dominant paradigm. I miss stories, not of what my guests have done, but of their inner fire. And after 75 interviews, one of my big takeaways is we cannot heal the world if we don't feel the world. So I have two questions, uh, sequence as you will, ignore as you will. Um, the first one is what so moves, inspires, and motivates you that you stayed with your work through thick and thin? And in this moment of great turmoil, what promise do you see on the horizon? In other words, what could possibly go right? Well, thank you, Vicki, so much for that wonderful introduction and lovely to hear about your ties to the Institute um, and that past connections and sort of ongoing connections is, is wonderful to hear about. 
Um, I'm going to take the second question first, and then I'd love to kind of come back maybe after people have a sense of who, who, what I'm working on. Uh, I can talk more about who I am and what I come to this work with. Um, what could possibly go right in this moment is that we are in the midst of an extraordinary shift in how people think about the problem of monopoly power. Um, you know, for much of our history, the United States has had a strong focus on anti-monopoly policy. This has been baked into um, our way that we have approached the very idea of democracy. And at various times in our history, corporate power has reared its head and we uh, have, have stood up and, 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 and taken advantage of that moment to reinstate and reinvigorate our anti-monopoly policies. And we can go back and talk about some of those points in history if you like, but just to say where we are right now, um, we have been in, in a, a, a truly a devastating 40 year period, starting about 40 years ago in the 70s and 80s. Um, policymakers influenced by this uh, particular school of thinking, the Chicago School of Economics and Law, um, decimated our anti-monopoly policies, turned antitrust policy on its head and essentially created an embedded preference for consolidation of corporate power, for bigness, for loss of control at the local level, um, for the decimation of local economies. That's been policy and it's been policy that's been embraced by both Democrats and Republicans for more than 40 years now under the theory that we would all be better off and that power, questions of power and market structure should not concern us, right? Um, and we are now at a moment where that is changing. The, that set of ideas has been thoroughly discredited and there is an ascendant group of scholars, thinkers, advocates, and now powerful enforcement uh, uh, people in office who are changing that policy in a fundamental way. And it could make, in my view, it is the, it is the key thing that we need to do um, to, to, to resurrect democracy and to really safeguard uh, our democratic system from concentrated economic power and, and thereby be able to do all of the things that we need our democracy to do. You know, it's it, it's interesting because it's it's the also it's the primacy of the consumer. It's, you know, it's the, we are not citizens in a democracy, we're consumers in a marketplace. And, and we've been convinced that consumer preferences, you know, cheap, available, are really what make America great. It's like a redo of the narrative of this country. And because consumers have been convinced that their self-interest is that Amazon functions perfectly, apparently we're losing ground. We're losing local businesses. Uh, and people, you know, even though theoretically we have a preference for a level playing field, you know, fairness, mm -hmm. so, you know, community, you know, whether it's, you know, potlucks or whatever it is, we have a almost a romanticized memory of what America was, but at the level of daily life, our activities are, are very much consumers in a marketplace. And it's very much the agenda of one party. 
to 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 basically atomize the the society so there isn't a society there are only consumers in a marketplace so it's really it's interesting that you think that this is shifting because at, on the surface it seems that the consolidation of power is increasing so tell us what you see that shows the green shoots coming up through the cracks in the sidewalk yeah um let me let me start though by by uh responding a little bit to the consumer piece because i think that's so it's absolutely critical it's the absolutely right insight about about what has been happening you know i think we're people have have realized that our well-being even just purely in economic terms is not just a function of of who we are as consumers, but it's also our ability to earn a good wage, to have the opportunity to start and run a business, um, to participate in healthy uh, communities that have a diversity of opportunities and you know, a, a, a local government and a national government that actually works for people's well-being. So in all of those ways, concentrated corporate power has robbed us, right? We know that wages have been pushed down in industries as consolidation of, of happens and there are fewer and fewer corporations, they compete less for labor and wages have come down. Economists have found, for example, that um, a, a significant share of the rise in income inequality is owed directly to consolidation and corporate concentration. Similarly, we've seen a collapse in small business. This pathway to the middle class um, that long existed for Americans has really been cut off. And our government has been totally taken over in many respects uh, by corporate power. So in all of these ways, we are being harmed even in our just pure like economic self-interest. And then you start to layer onto that what has happened to our communities, our day-to-day -day lives, our level of interaction with one another, um, our sense of joy in the world, and, and then our democracy um, and the ways in which so many people have a sense of despair and anxiety because you know, we live in communities that are largely controlled by distant corporate forces in which our sense of being able to direct our own future collectively as a community has been utterly wiped out by this consolidation of power. Um, so there is this realization that is happening if, for many people that, you know, that we, that, that, that this consumer identity is, is blinding and that it's been a total mistake. It was not part of, uh, of the history of, uh, how policymakers interacted with it. It's something the consumer identity really came about, you know, 40, 50 years ago and became this sort of ascendant um, idea and conceptualization. And even our elected officials refer to us as consumers. <laughs> and when we are, in fact, citizens of, of the country that they serve. Um, and antitrust law, you know, has, you know, just to, to talk a little bit about this transformation, which is, I think should be understood, this transformation that happened um, in, the, in the 70s and 80s should be understood as a coup. You know, when Congress passed our antitrust laws, those laws are still on the books. They are incredibly strong. They are designed to protect us as consumers, as people who produce value, as citizens, they are designed to protect us in all of those different ways and to preserve democracy. They have this broad um, uh, political and social ends and their, their function from the way that Congress passed them in terms of consumers is like very minimal. That's an additional issue that's part of the concern, but it is not at the center of it. The center of Congress's concern in passing those laws and in the text of the law is really about decentralizing power 
and seeing that as as a core check in the same way that we have you know the three branches of government you have a check and balance to prevent any one branch from becoming too powerful or you know the relationship between national and local government Similarly, anti-monopoly was understood as a core part of the structure of a democracy because you had to have a check on private power or that would overwhelm the system too. So this is the conception of our laws that were passed in the late, you know, beginning at the state level in the 19th century and then at the federal level, the most recent of which passed in 1950, for example. Um, But then you come along and you had essentially a coup. Congress did not change the law, but a set of people who were put in charge of the enforcement agencies uh, and ultimately it filtered through to the courts, completely upended the interpretation of those laws and really turned them on their head. And the, the sort of lodestar for that was this notion of efficiency, that if we had bigger businesses, they would operate more efficiently, it would be more productive. And you know, efficiency is not exactly like a warm and fuzzy appealing kind of a thing. So, so it was recast by these folks uh, led by Robert Bork, Um, recast as consumer welfare. This will help consumers in terms of prices. And it's important to note that that was absolutely embraced on on the left as well as the right. Um, I mean, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton were as as much proponents and drivers of these uh, policies as anyone else in history, but it was a real coup from what Congress uh, had in mind. And so at this moment, uh, we, we actually uh, are in this place where people are resurrecting that history, recognizing that this was a coup, looking at the incredible evidence all around us of the fact that we have outsized corporate power and it's causing the very harms that Congress was, was worried about. And this, um, you know, this, uh, this thinking has really been ascendant um, among scholars, among journalists, among advocates. And we now have, um, uh, and the Biden administration. So uh, President Biden has appointed the leading light in this reform effort, um, a, 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 a woman named Lena Khan to chair the Federal Trade Commission, um, which is an agency, an independent agency that has extraordinary power to deal with uh, corporate uh, bad behavior and consolidation. Um, we are expecting any day now to have the final uh, of these five commissioners to have the final democratic commissioner um, uh, be appointed. And, and so she will then have a three, a three, two commission in order to, to propel that agenda. Biden has also appointed, appointed someone to lead the antitrust division within the Justice Department, uh, a guy named Jonathan Cantor, who is also a key reformer. And within the White House itself, Tim Wu, who wrote a lovely little book called Curse of Bigness a few years ago uh, about all of this, um, is a senior advisor to Biden on uh, on monopoly issues. Um, Biden has been doing a, a bunch of things across government to address concentration. And so all of that is going on. And then the other thing that's really exciting is that Congress is very seriously taking up these issues, at least in the context of the big tech companies, you know, Amazon, Google, uh, Facebook, Apple. Um, Congress did a major investigation, an 18 month investigation. This was led by the House um, Antitrust Subcommittee, part of the Judiciary Committee into the market power of those giants. It's an extraordinary investigation. It was the first time in more than 40 years that Congress has done an investigation of monopoly power like that. 
Um, and it yielded a set of recommendations and now a set of bills, uh, at least one of which has got real legs this session this year that would um, regulate and in the case of one bill, break up the big tech companies. This effort has been interestingly bipartisan um, and has real legs in Congress and is, you know, given how little Congress has been able to do on other fronts is really quite striking. So those are some of the green shoots. I think there are many others also at the local and state level, but um, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty remarkable what is happening. That is so beautiful to hear somebody unabashedly uh, support the Biden administration because he's getting, you know, no matter what he does, he's, he's like, he's like steady course on his agenda by and large, but there's a framing around him that is clearly political. So it's really beautiful to have somebody speak to this, to speak to, and also that it couldn't have happened without, you know, activists like you, you know, who are like, you know, nonprofit leaders, but also scholars, but also people in the streets. It couldn't have happened without that foundation of agreement in society. And um, yeah, I think that, that companies that are too big to fail are too big to love. You know, I mean, people like the services of, of, you know, Gmail, for example, or Google, but they don't love it. There's a sense of like, I'm trapped in something that is hostile to my well-being, but I, you know, I, I can't, it's a love-hate, you know, relationship. Mm-hmm. So I, I can see that that would be a bipartisan issue that, you know, it would appeal to the whole base, not just, not just, uh, you know, one party or another. And I also, I also am associating this with, you know, I'm, I'm more work on the grassroots level. I'm associating it with this idea of the great resignation, this confusion about where did the workers go? Where did they go? You know, and I did some research among the people in uh, people who've listened to this podcast have heard me talk about the, the subculture that's oriented around your money, your life, and around this idea of it's called financial independence, retire early, fire, but I think it's just a cute acronym. I think it's really people who have seen through the game and they're trying to moderate their consumption to buy back their liberty. Mm. Um, and there is, you know, when I researched very casually, you know, it wasn't like official, but I, I researched in the community, what do they, what do they think about the great resignation? Why are people doing this? Why have you done this? And what I saw sort of like the center point of all the, all the reasons was this system is not fair. I will not no longer bring my life into a marketplace where I'm not getting a penny more. And the leaders are making out like bandits. This is beneath my dignity. There's some sort of human pushback uh, to to what you're talking about at the macro level. Um, And right now, I mean, you know, people are occupying spaces like online sales, you know, Etsy, et cetera, but it's not just Etsy. It's all sorts of little consulting and educating. And, you know, there's a whole range of people who are under the radar who are making a living outside of the dominator system. Maybe they're they're you know maybe they're serving the dominator system, but I just think that that's another piece of it that there's an appetite from below 
to break out of this that can meet the appetite from above. So I, my question is like, how do we heal this, this disconnect that, 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 you know, whoever is out there that's framing what we think is framing the Biden administration, which is trying to resuscitate this leveler playing field. And it's just constantly running into sort of this poison water of weakness and effectuality. What I'm hearing is that a possibility of what could go right is lifting up the stories that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you see that happening? I have a, I guess I have a sort of complicated feelings about the question in the sense that it is remarkable and, and certainly a surprise to many of us who've been working on these issues for a long time that Biden opted to be, I mean, he gets this issue and, you know, we could not have asked for better people in these positions. And we're now seeing, you know, beginning to see the fruits of that, you know, so for example, the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice Antitrust Division um, are in the process of rewriting the merger guidelines, which sounds very arcane, but is a pivotal piece of enforcement policy that determines, you know, how we approach corporate mergers in ways that if they get these policies right, it will influence how courts think about antitrust policy and, you know, whole you know, the sort of future of, 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 of the structure of the economy. So it's pretty extraordinary and it's pretty, um, you know, it's, 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 it's pretty remarkable that Biden really, uh, you know, did this fully, uh, didn't, didn't hedge at all, at all on this issue. Um, and at the same time, um, I do think in general, both of Biden and the Democratic Party, that there has been a real problem and continues to be a real problem of pulling their punches and not being bold and aggressive and um, sort of unashamed really to stand up uh, to corporate power and to stand up to, um, you know, to, to, to be uh, really sort of full-throated in what they're trying to do probably one of my biggest like worries. And I know we're supposed to be on like what could go right, no, but it's on, okay. what could go, <laughs> on what could go wrong. I'm, I am just struck by the fact that the democratic party is increasingly, um, you know, made up of people who live in a relatively small number of large cities and who are um, relatively well off professionals and large swaths of the country, um, lots of working class places, rural places and so forth um, are not a part of the world that many Democrats inhabit. And, and that I think is really, uh, I think is really worrisome. I, I think we should lift up what Biden is doing on this front and particularly what these enforcers are doing. And I think we need to push Congress to go further. Um, you know, we t- need to make sure that we get this one tech bill that is viable through and that's going to happen or not in the next basically two, two to three months, you know, sometime, you know, end of July is about the end of the window on that. Um, but it, it's a bill that's passed, you know, both, uh, uh, you know, the House Judiciary and the Senate Judiciary by overwhelmingly bipartisan support. The barrier right now is whether leadership, meaning Chuck Schumer on the Senate side and Nancy Pelosi on the House side are going to bring those bills, that bill to the floor um, in each chamber. You know, that is the kind of thing that like, 
you know, if you have a, a, an opportunity to call your member of Congress or to pester Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer, that would be a great thing because I think there's a real chance that it could pass. But I do think that Democrats, um, you know, still, despite this one example of what Biden has been doing on this issue, I do think Democrats have generally taken a um, uh, submissive posture towards corporate power. So that's I say, really, okay, go ahead, <laughs> go ahead, yeah. I, I also, I, I, there's so much of what you said, have, have said so far that's really triggered, uh, you know, th- thinking of the responses that I'd love to, love to offer. You mentioned like these big companies being too big to, to, to fail. Um, and I actually think that we should start to, to recognize that they're too big to succeed. Mm-hmm. You know, big banks do very little in terms of actually funding the productive needs of the economy. Um, these big tech giants, you know, yes, we all enjoy, you know, next day delivery and e-commerce and, you know, search and all of that it is extraordinary. But the way in which those companies have a chokehold on the market that, you know, the, the next Google, the next big idea can exist right now because of the power of those companies. You know, so this is really and they are really choking off the ability of lots of other businesses who have to rely on Amazon's platform or Google search in order to reach their customers. They're now, you know, they're, they're levying huge tolls and steep fees in order to access um, those platforms. They're manipulating the market to favor their own products. So, you know, when you look, what we really have is a system that's quite dysfunctional, that is in fact not succeeding. So I think, you know, that old paradigm that you know, I think was a false paradigm, but that, you know, at least seems somewhat plausible that, oh, we're benefiting as consumers, even if these other harms are happening to our communities. At this stage, it's like, I don't, you know, I I think you can look around and see in so many ways that our economy is actually not all that productive or effective. And a lot of it has to do with the outsized power of a few giants. You know, and that has something to do with the great resignation. It's just this, you know, people put it in terms of, they're not willing to go back to work, you know, blah, 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 mm-hmm. you know, but I think there is this groundswell of revulsion. Yes. Again, you know, it's like they don't, you know, how do you exit this? Where do you walk away to? There's no way anymore. It's sort of like if you want to walk away, you have to walk in. You have to walk away inside of it. <laughs> how do you do <laughs> right. that? You know, and, right. and I think it's, you know, I, I I think times like these, these are the times that grow men's souls, you know, I mean, times like these are whetstones for mm-hmm. our, our moral sense, you know, when things are cushy, and they're just going along, we can go quite to sleep. But this is a time where people have like, how do we walk away in the communities that I relate to? That's a big question. How do we create a, a, a financial foundation for ourselves without participating in this thing that we recognize now is destroying us. So I think there's like really big questions out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but one of the things, going back to the Democrats, cause this goes about back to the emotional side of things. You know, you say they're pulling their punches, they're submissive. They, you want them to be unashamed, but they seem to be ashamed of their values. They, they're not full-throated. They're chicken. <laughs> you know? What is, you know, what is that? What is it that has the Democrats or those of us who are sort of unwillingly, but doing it, cooperating with systems of power, 
what is that inside of ourselves that keeps us from being like, you know, someone like Stacey Mitchell, who's like, no, I'm going to step up and I'm going to tell the truth and I'm going to go in the halls of power and I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to work on it. What inspired your courage? You know, what activated you? What, what gave you the capacity to, to be in it for the long haul to even in the face of disbelief and a sort of a line of senators or, you know, who just like, you know, let's get rid of this woman and listen to the next person who agrees with us. What gives you that ability to stand up and not be submissive? Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting, it's interesting to think about that question. I guess when I think about, you know, why is it that people in power are not, you know, our elected officials are not uh, standing up. I think, you know, often it's attributed to things like, you know, campaign donations and the like. More often than not, I really think it's ideology. I think it's the framework in which they see the world. Um, And, you know, a a, a belief in in the case of this issue, really in, in, you know, the, the, the notions that consolidated power and scale are all necessary and good, um, you know, sort of affinity for power themselves. Um, you know, I think it tends to actually come down more to that and, you know, than to, to, to ideas and frameworks and ideology even more so than campaign contributions. Not that the latter isn't important, but I think we don't analyze the former nearly as much as we, as we should. And I think what's exciting about this moment and what is happening is that that ideology is losing its hold. Um, I don't. I don't think it actually has much currency as as a coherent way of looking at the world. It's still operative in terms of what is actually generally happening in terms of policy, but I think it's really bankrupt um, at a more fundamental level. And so, the opportunity or the challenge to all of us at this moment is is to replace it, to have a better framework for how we, we operate the, the economy, how we structure the economy and what the economy is designed and set up to do. And so a lot of the work at this moment is like, what does that framework actually look like? How is it implemented? How do we build like a, that a support for that vision broadly and, and bring it about? Um, you know, in terms of what motivates me or what, you know, I, in, in some ways, I don't actually have an answer to that in, in the sense that I feel like I sort of came into this world um, with, um, you know, with just sort of a, a, a reformer's sense that things didn't work right. And I wanted to understand why and then try to change them. I, you know, I studied history in college, mainly Amer- I studied American history, a lot of like labor and environmental movement history and so on, you know, sort of economic history, if you will, because I wanted to understand uh, what, how does change happen? How do things go from working one way to working another? Like how did, how did anti-slavery, how did the anti-slavery movement, movement succeed? How did the civil rights movement succeed? Um, so I'm interested in that process of change. And I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that we have a lot of points in our history where things do change very radically, sometimes for the worse, but often for the better. And so, you know, I think I am hoping to steer this moment in, in the direction of of that kind of radical change, but but for the but for the better, 
I grew up in um, in Portland, Maine, and at the time, you know, Portland is a, and I, I live here now, is kind of a gentrifying little city. We've got a lot of those kinds of, of problems at this moment. But growing up here, it was a place that had been really left behind. Um, when I was a teenager, half of the storefronts or more were empty. Um, it was hard to get a decent job. It was a struggling kind of place. And you know, the, the degree to which Portland and Maine's economy in general was sort of subject to these outside forces um, was, I remember being very struck by that as a teenager and as sort of a punk rock kid who hung out in these abandoned downtown places and really felt like we had a system that had caused their demise um, and had, you know, ruined sort of public spaces and, and community life, um, all in service of this sort of these external, you know, Wall Street, big chain stores, you know, all of that. Um, and so it became something that, that later I was sort of a, able to study. One of the things that's true of me and is true of um, many of the people that are leading reformers in, in antitrust now, um, in, including Lita, Lena Khan, who, who chairs the, as I mentioned, is the, is the chair of the FTC, um, we all came to this work not by having gone to school and gotten an economics degree or a law degree. Lena has subsequently gotten a law degree, but she started out as a journalist who was studying, just going out and talking to, to businesses, talking to people in communities, market participants, trying to understand what was going on. And there's a kind of clarity that comes from just doing that. And you know, I've been able to do that with my research. Uh, that, that, you know, I think people who've been in, as I said, I feel like a lot of the things that hold us up are ideology. People have been indoctrinated into, you know, the world of, of uh, economics theory, which, you know, very much disagrees with all of these reform efforts, and, you know, have a hard time um, uh, seeing past it. And it's interesting that a lot of the key reformers really come from like a journalism background or a different kind of background where they were studying these things and how they were actually working in the world, co corporate power in the context of markets or industries or what have you. Um, and then looking to the law to understand how is this legal? <laughs> and when you, when you came at it from that, you realized, hey, antitrust law is not at all working the way it was intended to work. This in fact is illegal and we are not enforcing those laws the right way. Um, as, as opposed to people who are kind of trained in the ideological framework that you know, Robert Bork and others left us, uh, which is, is so inverted from, um, you know, from reality and lives in the, a land of theory that has little to do with what we actually see in the real world. Yeah, so I, uh, we should probably you know, head home on this interview. One of the things I'm hearing, because the, the, the last question I want to ask you is something about you know, everybody has answers, but a good question is, is how is the whetstone for learning? And it sounds like what you're talking about is that people have had a question. You know, they've investigated something. There's like something amiss here and I'm going to find out. There's uh, something that's possible and I don't see it being able to, you know, get through the screens of the society I'm in. So it, it's, it, that's a, a thing I hear is that, um, what could go right through me or through other people is to basically cultivate a questioning mind, not an angry mind, 
not a like hands on the hip. God damn it. Why are they doing it that way? You know, <laughs> but a questioning mind, like, hmm, I wonder why they're doing it that way. How do they get away with something that's clearly not good for the people? Because we get angry, but we don't think about it. You know, mm-hmm. our activism can come from this sort of explosive sense of, of injustice, but it's like putting in that piece of inquiry into the mechanisms. Because mm-hmm. I think I've done the same thing. I've been, you know, I'm not educated. I mean, I've got a degree in Spanish, you know, so, you know, but I, but I, my mind has been like a drill, you know, trying mm-hmm. to understand these things. So anyway, let's give people a good question to chew on. Um, Mm. that uh, they can take away as part of their uh, commitment to being part of what's going right? Mm. I think the question people should contemplate is, is what do you know in your own experience about how economic power is exercised in ways that are fundamentally undemocratic? You know, I, whether that's uh, the limited choices one has when you go to buy an airline ticket, for example, you know, that's a fairly direct one, but also in the work that you do, you know, many of us encounter, um, you know, a, a, a lot of the experiences that we have in the economy are um, mediated and, and controlled by um, actors that have pretty extraordinary power. So for example, when you when you sign up for almost anything now and you agree to the terms of service, lurking in all that fine print is a clause that says, um, if you have any sort of issue, you um, have to have this arbitrated on our terms as a company, right? So it heavily favors uh, the credit card company or whoever it is. And those that arbitration provisions also often apply to people who are selling their services. You know, if you're an Uber driver, for example, or what have you, um, you're also subject to those kinds of rules. We are, you know, and, and another way to say it is that we are, um, we are often regulated and controlled and governed in various ways by corporate actors that are totally unaccountable. And I think part of the part of the potential sort of revolution here is recognizing that we're all experts in this because we all experience it and thinking about the ways in which our own personal expertise ought to be brought to bear in this moment. And then the other thing I will say about this is that it's so crucial, and this goes back to that consumer identity. You know, we, because of that internalizing that, you know, we have been, sort of trained, if you will, even when we're in a reform mode, even when we're trying to solve a problem, to respond to that problem as a consumer. So I'm not, you know, I'm going to choose to shop here and not there. I'm going to buy this and not that. I'm, or, or even just as a, you know, I'm going to drop, you know, drop out of, you know, doing this type of work or what have you. We've been trained to respond in an, as just sort of individuals in an economy with nothing more than our individual power. And that works incredibly to the advantage of corporations because you know our uh, power as individuals, as consumers is incredibly limited. It's very difficult to get enough people together to like you know organize a boycott or anything you know like that. It just doesn't work. But our muscle as citizens is very powerful and it, we've allowed it to atrophy. So that's the other thing is like what is your what is your expertise? What do you know about this problem? 
and then go flex your, your citizen muscle, you know, and it could be making a call to Congress. It could be writing a letter to the editor. It could be talking to your neighbors. There are lots of opportunities. You can go the Federal Trade Commission now, they do monthly meetings and those meetings are have an open public comment at the beginning. And it's a great way to show support for what they're doing and to like weigh in with your own experience. So however you, you know, listeners sort of think about this problem of outsized corporate power and the opportunities really to have a robust anti-monopoly movement and policy in this country again, um, think about how you respond to it in terms of flexing that citizen muscle as opposed to the consumer muscle. That is perfect. And to do so um, without pulling your punches and unashamed. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So thank you so much, Stacy. This has been really a wonderful conversation, very inspiring for me, um, looking for my own points of power in the society where I do have influence and and where the presumption of influence has been, you know, a, um, a mistake. So thank you so much personally and on behalf of all the people who will listen to this. Thank you. Thanks, Vicki. I really enjoy the podcast. It's an honor to be uh, asked to join you. So appreciate it. Thanks for all you do. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com. <laughs>